Hello there and welcome to the very first instalment of the Weekend Briefing, where me, I, Jamila Rizvi, I chat to the human beings behind the headlines. On Tuesday this week, folks across the nation gathered at barbecues and beaches, parks and poolsides to celebrate Australia Day. They toasted all the great things about this country, our democracy and sense of fairness, our freedoms and our diversity. But a significant number of Australians were not celebrating. Instead, they marched on the streets in protest or reflected quietly at home. We want to change the date of Australia Day. You see, 26 January is the anniversary of the First Fleet's arrival at Sydney Cove. The 26th of January is a day of mourning. It represents invasion, murder and theft. Making our intended National Day of Celebration a day of mourning for many. Australia Day protests are being planned across the city. The original occupants and we, their heirs and successors, should be adequately cared for. Our lands have been expropriated by Your Majesty's government. The questions that it has posed have been more important than the act of changing the date. When those 12 ships turned up in Sydney, it wasn't a particularly flash day for the people on those vessels either. Some called for the date of Australia Day to be changed in the name of reconciliation. Australia Day continues to be hugely popular, with three in four Australians believing it has a bigger meaning beyond just being a day off. More than half of all Australians participate in Australia Day events organised by state governments, local councils, community groups, or just by getting together with friends and family. 16,000 new Australians became citizens on Tuesday this week. As an Australian citizen, I affirm my loyalty to Australia and its people. Today is really important to me because it's official that I'm an Australian. But is 26 January the right day to pause and pay tribute to our nation? Should the date be changed so that everyone can feel included in the celebrations? Or... Are there bigger political priorities on the national agenda for Australia's First Peoples? Thomas Mayer is a Torres Strait Islander man born on Larrakia country in Darwin. Since contributing to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017, Thomas has travelled around the country to promote its vision for a better future for Indigenous Australians. He is also an author and has written a book for children called Finding Our Heart. Thomas, thank you for being our very first weekend briefing guest and also a thank you to your daughter, Ruby, who has vacated a room so we could kind of phase out a little bit of the monsoonal-type rain you've got going on in the background. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. We've just heard that most Australians are still happy to celebrate their nation on January 26. Would you like to see the date changed? Yeah, well, I think it. what's the most important thing about this debate that's becoming a bit like Groundhog Day now, you know, every year you sort of, especially as a, as a First Nations person, you're bracing yourself for this usual debate and I would like people to focus on how we can resolve this debate. And I think the, the answer is to, you know, establish a representative body. That's the only way for First Nations people to have this discussion in a proper way with Australia. And 
uh, yeah, it's it's tiring, but um, you know, I I'm trying to get people to focus on here is the way that we can resolve it. So I came across some polling this week that shows that millennials and Generation Z are less supportive of celebrating January 26. 58% and 47% respectively want to keep the date where it is, which which is still a big number. But that compares to 80% of baby boomers and 90% of the generation before them who want to stick with the date. What does that tell us, do you think, about younger people and perhaps even children's openness to thinking about doing things in a new way? Now, you have written a number of books, but you have also written a book for children that speaks about the Uluru Statement. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I um, have written uh, Finding Our Heart is the book's name. And for five to 10-year-olds, it, it tries to um, explain the, the Uluru Statement. And I do that by, you know, very gentle but um, but still very truthful way of taking the child through uh, our history and and it, it basically points out the truth that this nation's heart is is yet to be found, and it wasn't. It didn't come on the ships, and it didn't. Um, it wasn't growing on the farms. It wasn't in the ground when the ground was dug up um, for mines. Um, and and basically, it leads to the heart of the nation is in in uh, First Nations peoples' voices and perspectives and connection to this country. Um, I wrote it because I, I know that, um, as you were saying, um, there's great hope in, in, in youth. Um, and I, I've learnt over the years that children teach us. My kids always come home from school. You know, they love to tell me about what they've learned about First Nations culture. You know, the Larrakia, we're, we're Torres Strait Islanders, but they tell me about the Larrakia seasons and different languages that, you know, language that they've learnt. I knew that if I was able to... Uh, explain the Uluru Statement to children that they would then teach their their parents and the adults in their life. I think as writers, our harshest critics are always our family. Have have your own kids read the book? Yeah, they have and they love it because, you know, I tell them it's based on them. So that, that always gets them. <laughs> That's um, a win. The pattern of the book or the, the structure of it was based on the conclusion um, in my first book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, where I, um, my son asked me as I'm writing the book what I would call the book and I tell him, you know, I ask him first, what would you call the book? And, um, you know, he was, uh, what was he, seven years old at the time or something and, you know, typically he'd done a series of arm farts, you know, armpit farts to, <laughs> to respond before he got serious and I said the name of the book will be Finding the Heart of the Nation. And so William, my son, says to me, where is the heart of the nation? And I pulled him close and I said, well, the heart of the nation is here. And I put my hand on his heart and said that. And so the book, you know, is based on that interaction with my son. You sound like a hell of a great dad. Can you tell us a bit about your kids' relationship with culture and the land that they live on? Yeah, like I said, we grew up on Larrakia country, all of us. The kids aren't practising island dancing yet, um, but, uh, you know, I did as I was growing up. Um, we're a long way from home, the Torres Strait, um, but I teach them, you know, as much as we can here on the mainland. And and that's the thing, Torres Strait Islanders, it's a small, you know, we've got small islands and, you know, a lot of uh, our people, like my father, have travelled to the mainland and 
and built a life here. And um, Torres Strait Islanders still stay connected to our culture on the mainland here in our community. We practice island dancing and continue to cook our food. And as long as we're close to the sea, we can find out our traditional tuckers, you know, anywhere around the north coast. What was your own childhood like? Tell us about where you grew up. Well, I grew up here on Larrakia country and my father's attitude was very much just get on with it type of thing. You know, he'd come here, extremely hard worker. Nobody I ever met um, that had worked with my dad didn't marvel about how hard he worked. You know, he was the sort of man that never complained about anything. I, I saw him break bones on the footy field playing rugby league with the bones sticking out of his body and oh. walk off the field and take himself to hospital and without a complaint. So he was a hard man. So I had a bit of a hard upbringing in that way. But I learnt, especially I've been writing a book about fatherhood that should come out just before Father's Day this year. As you know, as a writer, you tend to discover yourself or discover things that you didn't really know about yourself or really frame those things in your mind. I learned through writing that, you know, even though he, he rarely said he loved me, he was telling me he loved me in, in other ways, just by trying to survive and making sure that we did. And, and you know, his, his harshness was part of the reality of what it is to be, a you know, an Indigenous black man and, and boy for me at the time in a world that treats you differently um, and much harsher than he would. It's interesting. My, my father was similar in that um, he wasn't someone who ever said, I love you to his kids, but our generation and the generations coming after us, we like to say it more, <laughs> whereas previously it was shown rather than said. You went on to be part of the historic Uluru Convention. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. And we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Can you tell us what it was like being there? Oh, what an incredible moment, you know, just listening to Professor Megan Davis um, reading those last words, bring back great memories. We had had three days of passionate discussion and, and debate to that point, um, and before that, 13 dialogues all around the country. And uh, again, with passionate debate, you know, with lots of discussion, lots of ideas. And in that moment, when Professor Megan Davis finished reading those words, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the entire room stood as one and endorsed it with standing acclamation. And the most incredible thing that I saw in that moment, I, I think I was one of the last to stand. My legs were still shaking because I'd um, been up on the podium just before Megan. And I looked around the room just stunned, you know, that we were achieving this, that we were endorsing this so emphatically. The most um, incredible thing was seeing people that had been in, in you know, such passionate debate um, against each other, embracing each other with tears of joy, you know, and they were wiping each other's tears from their eyes. And, yeah, it was an incredible moment. It was something that this country should, should celebrate, I think. Yeah, it sounds like it was extraordinary. In the Uluru Statement, First Nations people ask for a formal voice to Parliament that's enshrined in the Constitution. That sentence in includes a lot of big words and sounds kind of complicated. 
What does that mean and, and why does it matter? Yeah, it sounds complicated, but it's not really. It's the Constitution. I explain it like this. The Constitution is simply a rule book to the nation. You know, it's the, the rule book that even politicians must obey. They've got no choice. What we called for was a, our, our representative body, uh, voice, representative body, to be enshrined in the Constitution so that the politicians cannot silence it so that there's a mandate that they must listen to it. The only way we changed the, the rule book and the reason why it's so powerful is because the Australian people are the only ones that can do it by a double majority. They will you know, need to do that through a referendum. And so when they vote yes to establishing this voice in the constitution, it's a very strong message from the Australian people to say that the rules are now that First Nations must be listened to when they talk about the things that affect them. Another phrase that gets mentioned in the Uluru Statement is a Makarata Commission. Can you explain what that is and what role the proposed commission would play in truth-telling? Yeah, the Makarata Commission, Makarata is a Yolngu word, uh, the, the Aboriginal people of northeast Arnhem Land. It means the coming together after struggle. It is a dispute resolution, basically. Makarata has been used as a word in the political discourse since the 80s, where it was used as a word for, for treaty making, basically, again, you know, for reaching a settlement and dispute resolution. Um, it would have the role of um, supervising truth-telling around the country. There's lots of great truth-telling that's happening right now. It needs a coordination from a commission and also to supervise agreement-making or treaties. Treaties are happening right now. But there needs to be a commission that can um, support and, and balance the, the negotiations. The coming together after struggle is a definition I hadn't, I hadn't heard. I didn't know that that was what Makarata meant. And um, it's, it's quite perfect, really. We had one, albeit small, symbolic change made earlier this year. The Prime Minister announced a, a change in the wording of the national anthem the lyrics were amended so that they no longer say we are young and free, they say we are one and free. Uh, don't ask me to sing to demonstrate. Um, do, does a symbolic shift like that give you any kind of sense of, of, of hope in this space or does it feel more like frustrating little moves around the chessboard? It's easy to say it gives me no hope at all, but that actual move is the result of, of people power to begin with, right? It's a, mm. it's a minute move and I don't think it again it doesn't it doesn't change anything practically it was done the wrong way as well like um, it's a decision made without First Nations people um, saying that this is what we want you know and again it all comes back to um, where is this uh, representative body for First Nations people to have these sorts of discussions so uh, I think it was um, poor form by the Prime Minister He's had the Uluru Statement from the heart on the agenda for the last three and a half years to establish a constitutionally enshrined voice to talk about the, the way that, um, you know, we can bring the country together. And one word change without us is just the, you know, just poor form. So what's next? We're in this position where government didn't pay the attention we had hoped to the Uluru Statement. We've come forward from that time without little change for First Nations people. Where to from here for you? 
Well, we've got ourselves into a position where right now there is a co-design process going on for the voice. So what people can do, there's a public consultation process going on right now for that advisory group that's doing the co-design led by Marcia Langton and Tom Kalmer. And we need all Australians, all Australian organisations and individuals to make a submission to that saying that it should be on the record that the Australian people, that the organisation, that the individual wants the voice to be taken to a referendum and to enshrine that before it is legislated. And that's that's just such a, an important and practical thing to do, you know, like people will often ask, what can we do? Reconciliation and things like that can be frustrating because they're very broad, you know, they're very overarching things without very specific things to aim for. But here it is, I'm telling you what you can do specifically, and it's the beautiful thing about the Uluru Statement. It actually says how we want to move forward. So there you go. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on The Weekend Briefing. Thanks so much, Jamila. Thomas Mayer won't give up on the Uluru Statement and a better deal for First Nations people. If you'd like to hear more from Thomas, you can find his books for adults and children in all good bookstores. Thank you for spending some of your precious weekend here with me, Jamila Risby, on the Weekend Briefing. We have kept you across the biggest headlines all week long, but now it's time to take your foot off the pedal and find out what's going on in the weekend. We're going to work out what you should be reading, watching, listening to, cooking, seeing, doing with Tate McGregor. Jamila, I have three excellent suggestions. I want to point you on what you should read, apart from Thomas's books, obviously. Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe is incredibly important this week. It's a book that dismantles the misconceptions that Indigenous Australians were primitive hunter-gatherers at the time of European settlement. Instead, it shows that they had really progressive methods of like farming, irrigation, housing, and essentially breaks down the whole Terranalius flag planting, if you will. It's super important and definitely one you should get your eyes across. I think they even have a children's book about it. They do. Bruce Pascoe has written a version for children and both of them are on the shelves at my place. What are we going to be watching, Tate, for those of us who, I don't know, we'll be reading the weekend after. (laughs) The Dry. It's in cinemas at the moment. I was first put onto this because it's the debut novel by Jane Harper that's been made into a film by Reese Witherspoon. So she has a book club. It's always got books that have really strong, like, cinematic storylines. I read it after her recommendation. I was like, oh, my God, it needs to be made into a movie. Better yet, it's set in Australia. It's in rural Victoria and follows a Melbourneian cop called Aaron Fork, and he returns to his country hometown after a double murder-suicide. And then he starts questioning this murder-suicide and then starts pissing off the people in the town, which he disgracefully left years earlier. How are you, Gretchen? all over town that you're reopening the investigation. Luke drove to his house at 4.30, killed his family, and headed here to kill himself. You're convinced he did it. What do you think? There's lots of twists and turns. You'll love it. Cannot wait. I'm a big Jane Harper fan. I mm-hmm. really enjoyed Force of Nature and The Lost Man. And um, I think, is there some Eric Banner in the dry? Oh. Definitely some Eric Banner. If you're a Banner fan, he's back in full force. So you've heard some stories about me? I've heard some. 
I think I'll be able to make time for it. And something to listen to, Tate. Okay, Arlo Parks. She's a 20-year-old West London singer-songwriter who just released her debut album yesterday. It's called Collapsed in the Sunbeams. You might have heard of her before. She's collaborated with Glass Animals, who took out Triple J's Hottest 100 the other day. And she also won BBC's Introducing Artist of the Year Award last year. She blends... Pop, jazz, folk and hip-hop, definitely one to keep an eye on. And yeah, her debut album, Collapsed in Sunbeams, out yesterday. Tate McGregor, thanks for filling our weekend bucket list right up to the brim. (laughs) If you have suggestions for what we should be including in the briefing bucket list, please send them our way. You can hit us up on social media at the briefing podcast. While you're there, tell us who you would like to chat to, who you would like to hear from. We talk to the human beings behind the headlines and we need to know who you want to get to know. The briefing podcast will be back on Monday with Tom and Jan ready to listen bright and early from 6am. A podcast one production.